Hello friends, Stephen here. We've been doing Tent Theology now for over a year and it has been a wonderful ride. We plan to keep going with this, so don't you worry. But I did think it would be good to take the time to mention something I've never really talked about on the podcast before, and that is our Patreon account. If you go to www.patreon.com forward slash Tent Theology, you will see three different levels that you can give at. Every level gets the same goodies, which is extra material, courses, teaching, and other interviews. We try and put something up every week so that you get the Tent Theology podcast as well as the Patreon bonus episodes. Tent Theology is a labor of love. It costs some money to make, not only our time, but also to host the podcast on various websites and platforms. By giving to Tent Theology, you allow us to keep making this thing. We are so thankful for the patrons that we already have. And if you are someone who has benefited from Tent Theology or something that we've made in the past, do consider becoming a patron for as little as $5 or £5 a month. We're poised to be releasing our study of the Book of Acts on the Patreon account. Here on the podcast, we're going to release the first four episodes looking at the beginning of the Book of Acts. But then over on the Patreon account, you will get a line-by-line political theology reading all the way through to the end of the book. If you've been thinking about supporting Tent Theology, this is the best time to jump on board. Thank you for your support. Now on with the show. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Acts chapter 1. Reading from David Bentley Hart's translation, just for fun. The first thing to notice is this is the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke. And Luke, in fact, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles as one text, or at least the Apostles is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. So they are meant to be read together. And I said in the previous episode how many of the themes of Luke, so the things that happened to Jesus and the identity of Jesus as uh, a type of Moses, as the innocent suffering servant, and as the Messiah. These are things that become used by Luke and applied to the church in the book of Acts, and also the things that Jesus predicts take place in Acts. So Jesus predicts things will happen to his followers, he uh, good and bad, and these things then take place in the book of Acts. And Luke starts his book of Acts. I produced an earlier treatise, O Theophilus, concerning everything Jesus initiated, or everything he began, both as a practice and as a teaching. Theophilus here is either an actual person named Theophilus, but the word also means lover of God, so it could be, sometimes is suggested that Luke is writing to anyone for whom that name is a good description, the lover of God. But in any case, it doesn't really matter because this is a text that was meant to be read out loud and passed around to different groups anyway. So it doesn't matter if Theophilus was a person or just a generic word for a group of people. O lover of God, concerning everything Jesus began, both as practice and as a teaching, 
The book of Acts is a continuation of work that Jesus began and was described in the Gospel of Luke. And I wrote this until the day when he was taken above, having issued instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, to whom, after he had suffered, he showed himself alive by many irrefutable proofs, being seen by them over a period of forty days and telling them things about the kingdom of God. Remember, the kingdom of God, a very important feature. Jesus spoke about the church twice, both times mentioned in the book of Matthew. He spoke about some kind of refining fire, uh, which or hell, which in English we call hell, but it's not a word that Jesus used. Gehenna, the place of burning unquenchable fire. He talks about that about eight times in the Gospels. And he talks about the kingdom over 200 times. So the kingdom is the exponentially greater focus of Jesus than anything else. And I often say if your Christianity is very church-focused, very hell-focused, you're doing it wrong. I, I don't know what else to tell you. Jesus did not actually literally care about those things as much as he cared about the kingdom. And we will be talking about some of that stuff later on because church shows up in the book of Acts. And in some ways, the movement from Jesus' people to church is important. It's part of what the book of Acts is actually describing. But the kingdom of God is the feature that Jesus was most associated with, and it had to do with his movement. The kingdom of God didn't mean a place you go to. It wasn't, it wasn't a place you go to when you die. The kingdom of God was another way of describing what happens when God's reign is unopposed, where God rules unopposed, where people say yes to God. And the idea is that Jesus was walking around the land saying, the kingdom of God is here, it's now. And he said, essentially, if you say yes to me, that's like saying yes to God. The kingdom of God is now. And Jesus being portrayed as a king is central, crucial to all the gospels. And Luke is definitely no different. And go and read the Luke narrative of Jesus's birth. If you want to see anything about how Jesus was a king. And so Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God to the disciples, to the apostles who he had chosen. And meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but rather to await the promise of the father, which you heard from me. Because John, the John the Baptist, indeed baptized with water, but you will be baptized with a spirit, the Holy One. Not many days hereafter. So go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always an agent of creation. The Holy Spirit is the one who's hovering over the formless and void in the book of Genesis. And its creation is being brought out of chaos, order out of chaos. And the Holy Spirit is the the one associated with redemption of creation, but also just new creation. And what you'd see in the Gospel of Luke, as we also saw in Mark in a previous study, is that Jesus as a king is also as a creator. So he's not just a king, he's also an agent of creation. And when Jesus has the Holy Spirit, or when he is a Holy Spirit, this is Luke reminding us that Jesus is, when he speaks and when he forms people around him, it's like, or as if, The world is being recreated around him. And now Jesus is saying that you will be baptized with this same spirit. This is the beginning of the handover of that Jesus is doing and saying things in the gospel of Luke 
which now his followers and his disciples will be doing in the book of Acts. And the handover, the baton of new creation, of kingdom work, is in the gospel of Luke, is being handed over now in the Acts. So then coming together, they questioned him, saying, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Verse 6. The disciples still have a obsession or focus on the kingdom of Israel. So Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God. The disciples now ask, verse 6, about the kingdom of Israel. Will it be restored? Will the messianic hope for foreigners to be kicked out and the land to be purged and the people of God to have their space once again free from any uh, taint and opposition? Is this what's going to happen? Are you going to do it now? It's always this question with the disciples. And they're always having to be, if you'll remember in the Gospel of Mark, but you'll also see it in Luke, they're always having to be re-educated as to what it is a Messiah is, what Jesus is. And he said, now I'm going to suffer and die. I'm not going to kill my enemies. I'm not about racial purity. I'm about letting the Gentiles in. I stormed the temple in order for this to be a house of prayer for all nations. I meet with Samaritans. I meet with foreigners. I meet with the unclean and the poor who have been rejected and seen as unworthy to be people of God. These are my people. I am the Messiah for all these people. And here the disciples still don't get it. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? But he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has set, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. So notice here that in verse 6, you see the disciples' focus is the kingdom of Israel and restoration. And Jesus opens it out and he says, look, stop, basically stop talking about that. Stop obsessing over that. Go instead and receive power, dunamis. There's uh, the power, the word dunamis is the word of inner power, like a dynamite or a dynamo, where the power is from inside and it bursts outwards. There's this idea of gather your resources, stay put, wait for the power to grow, and then it, you'll burst forth. There's an outward movement. So restoring the kingdom of Israel is in many ways about setting boundaries, building walls, making sure that the boundaries are very clear between Israel and everyone else. And the movement of restoring the state of Israel is all about repelling the outsiders and making the inside very stable. Jesus then reverses the expectation and he uses the language of power that's going to burst out when the Holy Spirit, the agent of creation, comes upon you. Go to Jerusalem, hunker down, wait for the power that's going to build up and burst out of creation from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. The restoration of Israel is all inward-focused, small and narrow. Jesus replaces that expectation with bursting out, witnessing to the ends of the earth and he deliberately mentions Jewish lands as well as Samaritan lands, foreign lands and then this phrase the ends of the earth. It's an encompassing of the whole world. 
The word witness there is important. Witness becomes a crucial self-identifying term for the early Christians. The witness was, the word became associated with martyr later on, especially in the book of Revelation, but also here in Acts, you'll see it with Stephen and others who lose their life. But the word witness did not originally mean, or the word martyr didn't originally mean death. It just meant witness to the truth or the one who's speaking the words of the master. And Jesus is just asking you to witness to him and to speak his words. The fact that those who did witness and speak his words then get killed for it is why the word witness or martyr became associated with death because of books like Acts and Revelation. And here the vision of the disciples is to be witnesses, function of the witness, the one who stands and looks or stands and proclaims is something that the Apostle Paul will use when he talks about putting on the armor of God in Ephesians. And then after you gird yourself with the armor, then you do you stand. It's an odd image. It's, it's one of standing firm or being planted and then bearing witness is not actually one of activism. It's not even one of evangelism so much as it is of being present and planting your feet firmly and not leaving the place. And it's certainly not one of onward Christian soldiers. In fact, in many ways, it's the opposite of that. You'll see that in the book of Revelation, the word witness becomes used for the, for the believers. And they're the ones witnessing the acts of destruction of Babylon and all her minions. But they themselves are not the ones doing it. And their role is to witness to the destruction, not to participate in the destruction. In any case, Jesus points out this is the end of the earth that this is going to happen. The witnesses are going to stand and deliver their words and their witness to the ends of the earth. Verse 8, this end of the earth is going to be a major theme in the book of Acts. We've already now been told this is the theme. This is what Jesus said. These are the last words of Jesus in the book of Acts. And so it's kind of important to pay attention to them. This is one of those moments where reading from below is really helpful or when not reading as a 21st century westerner because the known world to the writers of acts and the original audience of acts was limited from our point of view and in fact it happens what jesus predicts that you will be witnesses to the ends of the earth from the point of view of the author and readers of acts this happens. This isn't a crazy futuristic prediction of Jesus that has not yet come true. This isn't one of those times. This isn't an end of the age and futuristic prophecy. This is a statement that Jesus makes which comes true within the book of Acts from the point of view of the original audience. So all of the known world gets mentioned in Acts. The most northerly points, the most southerly points, the most easterly and western areas and regions that were known get mentioned in Acts as places where believers come from or missionary journeys go to. And saying these things, as they were watching, he was taken up and a cloud took him from their eyes. And we have the ascension. And as they were staring at him ascending into the sky, 
Look, standing beside them were two men in white garments. And here again come the sons of God creatures, the angels or the messengers, who come in the same sort of garb that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels. And these white figures say, Galilean men, why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you will come in the way you saw him going to the sky. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain on the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem. So now the disciples are going to go and do the thing that Jesus told them to do. This disappearance of Jesus is theologically, the ascension of Jesus is, is theologically very important. There are some interesting books on it. I recommend a theologian named Douglas Farrow, F-A-R-R-O-W. Wrote a very good book called Ascension and Ecclesia. So the Ascension and the Church. And he's written some other things on that. The Ascension is an interesting doctrine because it is a way of preserving the bodily feature of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was incarnate and he leaves with his body. And there is a Christian idea that Jesus still has a body. He didn't leave his body. That's not what he left. He left this earth. But he has a body and we don't know where he is. We don't know what happened or how it happened. And the New Testament declines to speculate on this thing. But the bodily nature of Jesus is still really important. And it's not that Jesus fades away like a force ghost. Uh, it's not that he, he disappears and his body crumples to the ground. His body itself leaves. And the return of Jesus in the body is part of the central Christian tenet of the incarnation is that once Jesus, once God took on human flesh, there's always human flesh. This isn't a, a temporary event and we don't know what happened. There's a transformed body. So Paul will speculate in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, largely on his experience of seeing the white light, meeting the transformed body, the spirit body, which is still a body of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul will speculate that these bodies are transformed and that the body that Jesus has, the resurrected body, is the first fruits of what we will have. But it's still a body. And when he speaks, when Paul and the early Christians speak of spirit bodies and fleshly bodies, they don't mean secret invisible gas which animates the body. They mean a spiritual body. A body in touch with the rule and reign of God or a body that's in touch with the rule and reign of man. Spirit body versus fleshly body. And the flesh is just the temporary rule of man. And the spirit is that which is aware and under the eternal rule of God. So we don't know what happens to our bodies. And we don't know what happened to Jesus's body. But we think he still has one. And it perhaps has moved into a different plane of existence or something. And again, as I say, they don't speculate on it, but they do put it in. And they're not embarrassed by this idea that Jesus goes off into the sky, but he's going to come back in the same way that you saw him leave. He's going to come back with a body. But of course, the absence of Jesus or the physical absence of Jesus raises now the space. His, his absence means that other people are going to flow to fill the space. And this is the beginning or the space making that Jesus makes to create the church, to properly hand over the baton to his disciples of the work that began with Jesus and his life is now going to take place with Peter and John and James and the rest 
And so they go up to the upper room where they are staying, and there's Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, and the list of them. Simon the Zealot's an interesting one. He's The Zealots would have been uh, freedom fighters. One of the people that freedom fighters killed was tax collectors, because freedom fighters were Jewish freedom fighters who killed Jews seen to collaborate with Rome. And Matthew is also in this group. Matthew was a tax collector. So Simon and Matthew would have been at odds with each other before Jesus rocked their world. And Judas, son of James, was there. This is not Judas Iscariot. It's a different Judas. And they devoted themselves constantly to prayer with a shared intensity of feeling, together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There's a lot more people here than just 12 or 11 disciples, because Judas Iscariot is dead. There's a lot of followers, and Acts is going to start numbering them soon. But you have to remember, it's more than just 11 people. There were just 11 apostles, the, the ones who were part of Jesus's inner group. But there were more people connected to the Jesus movement than just 11. And you have uh, Mary and the women as well. And the women were patrons of the movement. Some of them were quite wealthy, and we'll meet some of them in a bit as well. But again, there's this idea that Jesus was starting a kingdom, and he had followers after him and around him. And his claim to kingship was credible. And it was smashed by the Romans and the Pharisees and the temple groups. So his followers now are without direction. But they're still around. In those days, Peter is standing in the midst of the brethren. And the crowd of names taken all together was about 120. So about 120 people had survived or maintained the connection with each other after the thousands of people that we met in the Gospels who are following Jesus around, swarming over the hillsides, being fed by him and all that. And here we, the number has now shrunk down to 120, which is, which is really what's happening is out of fear. The disciples are, are, are cowering. The followers are, have scattered out of fear of what happened to Jesus. And Peter stands up and he says, Brothers, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, which the Spirit, the Holy One, spoke beforehand through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. So now Judas Iscariot is one of the mysteries for the early church. They have to deal with him. They have to figure out how could you know Jesus and then betray him. And here we have one of the attempts to explain Judas. And there, Judas gets explained in different ways in different Gospels. And here, this is Luke's explanation via Peter, which is a theological one, which relates to David, to the Psalms. For he's numbered among us, and we had a share in his ministry, so that from the reward for his injustice, this man purchased a field. And here Luke now tells us a, an anecdote about that here Judas bought a field, and then looks like maybe he hung himself or he impaled himself and all his intestines spilled out. And then it's become known as the field of blood, which is a different story to Judas's end than appears in other Gospels. But this is the this is the story that Luke is giving us. And then Peter does a theological reflection. You're going to see this happen a lot, that an event will happen and then Peter will theologically reflect upon it and his theological reflection will involve referring to the Hebrew scriptures, to the Psalms of the prophets. So here's Judas. He, a thing happened. He betrayed Jesus. He bought a field and he died in it. He committed suicide. 
and it was called a cursed field or field of blood. And then Peter now theologically reflects on it. He says, look, this was in the book of the Psalms. That there will be a, a, a desolate estate. He will leave behind a desolate estate and let there be no one dwelling in and let another take over his office. So then they decide. So in the book of Acts, the, the story of Judas dying is theologically explained as this was a prophecy or this was we, this is we could expect this is going to happen. And so now we need to fill his place. So it is necessary that out of these men who accompanied us during the whole time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptizing until the day he was taken up from among us, one of these should become a witness to his resurrection. Okay, let's look at this. It's not just the resurrection that they're concerned about. Again, I think we have a lot of, I run across a lot of uh, bad habits or bad imagination amongst a lot of Christians who can get I guess you can get familiarity can breed contempt. And we often will get very obsessed with the resurrection and forget about the gospels or forget about the life that got resurrected. So there's quite a lot of a whole industry of of a whole uh, apologetics movement of how to defend the resurrection, how to argue and justify and intellectually be credible when you talk about a body rising from the dead. You know, a lot of times these people will, these apologists will refer to this kind of verse and they'll say, look, it's really important that you bear witness to the resurrection. Well, well, yeah. And the New Testament isn't actually that concerned about the body rising from the dead, because there's a lot of bodies that rise from the dead in the Bible. And nobody worships them. There's quite a lot. Even the book of Acts is going to describe a couple. Jesus is raising widows' sons and he's raising the uh, the 12 year old girl from the dead. And Paul is going to be preaching and a boy is going to fall out of a window and he'll raise him from the dead. And there's a whole lot, you know, Lazarus. Nobody worships Lazarus. The actual event of a body coming back to life is not the knockdown world changing event. It's not the thing that all the Christians are obsessed with. No. Verse 21, we need to find one of these men who accompanied us during the whole time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning with John's baptism out in the wilderness until the day he was taken up. One of these should become a witness to his resurrection. The New Testament cares more about the life that got resurrected than it does about the actual point of resurrection. Now, let me hear me right here. I'm not saying it doesn't think the resurrection happened, but the resurrection has no meaning apart from the life that got resurrected. And we're going to see this later, and it certainly happens in Paul's letters too, where the resurrection is the affirmation of the life that got killed. The world could not live with Jesus, so they had to kill him. He submitted to that death, and then he rose again, which was an affirmation of Jesus being the son of God, the word of God, the pattern of God, that the kingdoms of men could not defeat the kingdom of God. And the resurrection then is the rubber stamp or the affirmation of the life that got killed, which is why the people need to have witnessed the whole life of Jesus if they're going to be counted amongst the apostles who are now starting to act like the beginning of 
the movement called the church or the Jesus movement. And so then they go and they find a couple of these people, Joseph, also called Justice, and Matthias. And they find two people. And remember, there was more than, I've said this many times, there was more than 12 people following Jesus around. There were many disciples. Here, Matthias and Justice, Joseph, were, were two of them. And then they appeal to the Lord or to the Holy Spirit. Please show us which one of these two you have chosen. And taking a place in this ministry and apostolate, which Judas deserted for a place of his own. And they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was reckoned together with the eleven apostles. Setting up the theme that we're going to start to see unfolding here, which is that the Acts of the Apostles is also the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the presence of the Lord with the apostles has not ended because Jesus ascended to heaven. We have with this chapter begins with Jesus going up into the skies and it ends with Jesus, the Lord, helping the disciples choose another for their number. And the Holy Spirit, who is not any longer an anonymous spirit, but he is Jesus's spirit. The Holy Spirit has the personality of Jesus. And it is Jesus's spirit who is guiding and partnering with the apostles. And there'll be times when we see this happening, that the apostles are starting to take on authority to make decisions and to set boundaries and to set standards or make choices, which Jesus would have done. And now it's the Holy Spirit, the dunamis power, the dynamo power from within that is filled them and filling them. And they are now empowered to make choices of who is in and who is out and what we're going to do about it, which was the kind of choices that Jesus was making in the Gospel of Luke. And now we're starting to see the apostles carrying on that work of building the kingdom and moving in the way of Jesus. We'll do chapter two in the next episode. Welcome, friends, back to another debrief session. We have just listened to me talking about Acts 1, and I'm very glad to welcome back to the tent my friends Natasha Beckles and Chris Marchand, two vicars, priests in Anglican churches. One, Chris, is in America, and the other, Natasha, is in England, based in London. So, Natasha, Chris, really glad to have you back to the tent. Welcome to Acts 1. What did you think, Chris? Yeah, you know, I, I am interested, first of all, in the concept of the church being an alternative politic. And, okay. then, and then how that converges with, you know, Jesus, you said, Jesus, he talks way more about the kingdom of heaven coming than he talks about church and he talks right. about a hell. And, and so, yeah, so to have that in my mind, I think one of the tensions that I'm feeling is, how do we know? Like, how do we know if we as the church are being the alternative politic or whether we've given ourselves over to the, the greater empire if, or the powers of, of that be of our age? And, and maybe my example is, is like healthcare or taking care of the poor and, and how there are governmental programs for that. 
there are a lot of great church programs. And so I really don't mean to necessarily harp on those, but I, I personally, like in America, even though we don't have a comprehensive healthcare system and people, I think people would fight to the death over healthcare in America. I don't know. They, they just lose it. They lose it over healthcare. Uh, but personally, I've benefited from our government's healthcare system of what, what actually is in place rather than some of the other Christian alternatives that are around. Because there are things like, like my wife, she, she has chronic illness and all of these Christian healthcare places would not do a thing for her. <laughs> like, I don't know if you're aware of these, these, these different, like share, they share, uh, they share different, uh, yeah. their, their monthly policies is all shared together. My wife would have, she'd be dead. <laughs> she'd be dead if she was receiving healthcare at the hands of the Christians. The government has saved her life. Um, and I don't mean that in a gospel sense. I just mean that like she's still alive because of government health care. And so I'm, I'm curious about like, is it, is it, mm. I'm not saying that I'm bad, but I'm, I, maybe I'm asking the bigger question about what is the role then? Like, it, is this actually a kingdom thing then that right. the, the church can work with, with the government in this sense and on that level? What, Natasha, do you, does, the, does the language of the alternative politics of the church mean anything to you? Is that something that's kind of come up in any of your work? Because you've, you've split time in the public sector yeah, and in the church now. Yeah, I, th I suppose I'm coming at it from the point of view, you know, you hit those Bible passages of, you know, we're meant to be salt and light. And in it, it, there's something about being in the community, being in um, for the common good of everyone, that there's something that Christian Christianity should be able to offer to the wider community. And I also, I've got a strong kind of perspective on creation that all everything belongs to God ultimately and he wants it back <laughs> and right, that's the right, whole right. plan and that you know this whole the, the word secular actually means the time since Christ came so all of it is yeah. his time and it, you know I, I I find it's really funny that this is a Christian word that we are now beaten over the head with I know and you've got whole sections of you know Christian denominations who spend their whole time talking about how terrible secular no, it's a Christian invention. It's a Christian invention, babe. Wake yeah. up. And it's just like, you know, so from that point of view, I think there is, there's, there's a both and that there are things that we are meant to stand and say, culture, secular, we are different about this and we're going to hold to this. And that, again, should be about the benefit of those people whose voices aren't going to be heard, platforming those situations, standing up for those things. So, you know, it, today, actually, I was walking down the street and a young guy um, of a ethnicity that is often targeted by the police was being arrested. And he was in tears because he was like, I'm supposed to be somewhere else. And you were stopping me from going here. And I'd just been shopping, walking up. And it's my, I, you know, as a priest in the community to stand and speak, you know, and check in on him, give him my number and let them know you know, I'm from this particular area. This is the church that I'm in. Please give him that number and please give him that support. And that's about, you know, there's points in our secular life that things are not going well. There's injustice going on. And we as priests, we as Christians should be, the royal priesthood should be standing up and making a point about those things. But then there's the other point that, you know, I see that we've, you know, even in the, the past year, one of the big critiques that has been of the church generally, Church of England in particular, um, has been the, the silence about some of the most traumatic things that we've seen in the last 18 months. And not knowing, it's almost you're forgetting your prophetic 
purpose and voice and I really love from the teaching you were talking about that and I was you know playing into that what is the the prophetic voice of the priest you know what are we supposed to be calling out not a kind of um as you put it fortune telling but holding the culture and the community to account um, for those people who, whose voices aren't going to be heard. So that, that's what I, we've got to work that out as Christians. We've got to work that out as ministers. What is your role in these situations? I think I was uh, from Acts 1. I mean, it's, it is one of my favorite little passages in Acts 1. So I, I know I already talked about it on the teaching, but that thing where the disciples saying, now, Jesus, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so the politics shows up. Right. I think it's Acts 1 verse 4 or something like that. I mean, I'll just check my Bible. It's something like that. Um, uh, verse 6. So within six verses, by the sixth verse, politics has shown up. Now are you going to restore the, the, the kingdom? And it becomes this, this political domination idea of like, is everything going to be put to right now? Um, are we going to run things well? Are you going to run this country the way it should be run? Right. And Jesus's response is to go into Jerusalem to basically get your heads down and just go wait. And we talked to you uh, last week, if you remember, Chris, you talked about, you find it difficult just to, when you're starting a new thing in a new church plant, sometimes just to wait. And there's this sense that G that is a prophetic act, right? A bunch of hothead, triumphalistic, religious zealots who say, hey, now's the time. Our time has come. And Jesus goes, wait, go and just, get your heads down and sit in one place. And that itself is a prophetic alternative po politics, isn't it? When you have this activism, which is all striving and, and also tinged with nationalism, like there's a real sense of like, you're going to restore Israel to us, aren't you now? That's the whole point. And Jesus sends them off to Jerusalem. And then what happens, of course, we're about to see this in Acts 2, a bunch of people speaking lots of different languages show up. And they don't get the pure nationalist, you know, monoculture that they wanted. They actually get something else. And the gospel is going to be spread to the ends of the earth, right? But there is a sort of an alternative political organization happening right within the first chapter or two of Acts, which is it's, they are organized, they are a movement, they are a kingdom, and they just don't look like what they think kingdoms look like, right? So... Yeah, there's there's a prophetic act even in this. I've never thought of that before. What do you think about the 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 disciples here, or the the list of people that Jesus is with, or does it does it sort of mean anything to you to think about these individuals that get named? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, necessarily about the individuals. Maybe what struck me about with what you said was you mentioned the spirit and how the spirit of Christ was now with them, and thus the spirit is partnering with these guys, with these people, <clears throat> with the, with the body. Uh, by the way, Americans, especially Midwestern Americans, we often say guys and we mean everybody. And uh, we've been called out on that before. <laughs> it's, all right. it's one of our Midwestern, Hey guys. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. It's an African word that means man. So don't worry about it. There you go. Right. We'll bond in you in. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, so I, I think that's maybe one of the more beautiful aspects of Acts is, is the, the spirit of Christ partnering with us. I mean, it's so beautiful. And because I'm so conflicted with everything, I, I immediately think about how so many people have used that to do what they want in church leadership. Right. <laughs> like Holy Spirit they, told they me. 
yeah, the, they play the Holy Spirit card. At, right. But at the same time, I can't let go of, of this basic principle. No, no, you, Christ is partnering with us to build his kingdom now. And he's empowered us. Uh, so that I, I won't let go of that, despite all the corruption. So, <laughs> yeah, well, and the messiness. I, I try not to... I, I try not to worry about it too much because if it, 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 at the end of the day, if somebody's calling on the name of the Lord and the spirit and using it in a particular way, it's going to come out at some point. Right. It's okay, going to come so out you... at some point. It's not going to have the energy to really last. It's not going to have kingdom. It's not going to have eternal. It's not going to have. So you're kind of a wait and see. Like you're, you don't mind if people use that language because you just think, well, the truth will come out eventually i think um wheat and tears it will it will sort itself out at some point because it just it doesn't hide which is a kind of an alternative politics by the way because the world's (laughs) politics says you see something wrong you fix it right away whereas natasha's like oh let's just wait and see we'll see what happens there's something about you know god is growing something in all of us in our kind of experience of stuff you know, you 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 work in a community and they worship the the leader. They mean well, but they they do, and then yeah. stuff starts to happen, and that leader falls off their pedestal, and yeah. you know the community goes through a trauma, and everybody's like, oh, but that's we didn't like it. it. You know, he let us down. No, no, no. You had to learn that as part of the leadership, part of a community, you you should be studying the Bible and thinking about who this the relationship that we have. So this is kind of. Yeah. symbiotic relationship that goes on between leaders and community you know it's like love your neighbor as yourself you're being reflected in the two and I just think you yeah. know it will come out it will out at some point we've we've had major churches that were pumping out all sorts of resources and the toxicity that was going on has come out yeah yeah you know it, who and who was a great church leader and they had no boundaries and you know, inappropriate stuff, at some point it comes out and it comes out, sometimes they're dead when it comes out, sometimes they're alive. Yeah, and right. I, I, you know, obviously there's harm that has gone on and we've got to walk with those people who've been harmed in that situation. But for people who have huge egos and like to be presented in a particular way, the worst thing for you is to die and then have your name completely battered because you were behaving in inappropriate ways. That is an eternal Gehenna. Yeah. well there's something here this is i mean that was kind of an awkward question i threw at you but the idea of that acts starts with named individuals it starts by by naming all the disciples and and the the women who are well the disciples the women are disciples as well he he mentions all these different names they're all leaders in the environment but i guess what i wanted to point out was like those people were alive at the time of acts being written or they had just died like they are fresh within living memory kind of people. And the, the, the named celebrity culture is one of the, you know, how Christians were, all, and Natasha, you were talking about this, like we, we build up these celebrities, we put them on platforms, and then of course they have a fall or, and it ruins their, our Christian ministry as a result. Like the celebrity culture was part of the Acts church. Like these are major figures and they are being named and and it's really interesting to to look at what how acts deals with them and how it does and doesn't let that celebrity bubble keep going right like we're gonna see peter having fights with we're gonna see arguments they're gonna be in the wrong um we're gonna see uh 
people being set up as the sort of hero of the story and then they fade away. Peter disappears and the, the, the camera moves to somebody else. The spotlight moves on to other people. And I, I feel like that's one of the aspects I'd like for us to, to look for as we keep going through acts is that pay attention to the named individuals and think that they are more than just child storyteller uh, they're, they're just they're not characters in a children's book like flannel did you ever have flannel graphs chris oh yeah you don't know what that is natasha <laughs> natasha's no, face that's because you're not like, you're not north american natasha if you were in english you would know a flannel graph well go on chris tell us what a flannel graph is well, it, uh, uh, the, the flannel was the fabric and it, it was this basically a big poster board, but a fabric and the Sunday school teacher would have these cutouts uh, in, in cloth and they would just, it, it wasn't quite like Velcro. It wasn't that strong, but they would just stick to the board. And so, you know, you'd have, well, here's Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and you'd stick these little piece of fabric to the, but they were cutouts. Like somebody had printed them off and then you just tell a story. And then when the, when the shepherds came on, you'd bring on the shepherd, you know, like you'd bring him on. It, it was kind of like a little puppet show in a little mm-hmm. way, you know? Yeah. Aww, right. And so most, most North American Christians, they think of the disciples as different cutouts on a flannel graph. They're just interchangeable <laughs> kind of paper, paper figures, like a paper doll. Well, I like, what I love about it is that you get to see the diversity of them. You know, you've got Simon the Zealot, Judas the yes. son of James. There's detail, detail. Yes. And that detail we've needed, you know, when we, in, in the kind of studying and thinking about how, what the authenticity of, you know, the, the, the names were real names at that particular time. So as we've d- dug down over time, we've had the capacity to do that. So that helps. And, you know, it's, you know, it is, it's still going to be a patriarchal document to a certain extent. It's written by men and they are, from that point of view, we do have brothers and sisters in there just because somebody's tried to make it more inclusive from that point of view. But, and and the women are not seen, but I, sometimes I think about, maybe that's about protecting the women as well. Um, Because if that, once their names are in there, then they too can be found. And there's a certain amount of violence that the Romans are very talented at. Um, yeah, so you know, there's yeah. other aspects as as to why it, it might be there. Because Luke is certainly not silent when it comes to women in the Gospel of Luke. No, he's not. Yeah. But he's still growing up in a patriarchal society. Oh, that's true. So he's he's yeah. going to do his best, but he's yeah. still going to have a little bit of lemon in there. <laughs> Fifty years ahead of his time, two thousand years behind ours, right? No, no, no. He may be ahead. I think he's ahead of us for a lot of places. There's evangelical places that you know will be affirming of women and really what their narrative is that we want the women to do the jobs we hate. <laughs> and so, and, and that's not what Jesus does and that's not what Luke shows us. He has the women doing the, the jobs that the, the Roman Catholic Church is still trying to work out what to do about Mary. What, what, <laughs> something about Mary. What should There's we do something about, about Mary. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, and a lot of the, the women here are, patrons of the movement so they're not they're not trotting behind carrying food for the men they are the patrons of the movement right they're bankrolling it they're bankrolling it and whenever you find by the way they met in people's homes right that is one of the most common refrains in the book of acts they're meeting in people's homes the early church met in people's homes well guess who was in charge of the home sphere (laughs) right like the, the the market and the government was the man sphere the home and the running of the household and the staff and the the marketplace, like the buying and selling of things to do with the house, that was the women's sphere. So when they meet in the women's home, she is a 
she is a figure of leadership in that home, right? It's her sphere that they're in. So it's not kind of a wifey at home kind of attitude. It's more like, oh yeah, we're, we are in the environment that has been built and protected and run by the woman right now. And she's invited us into her space. So if the ladies don't protect it, it, it dies. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this was just a feature of the early church. This wasn't, mm. I don't even think they were trying to make some point. It just was, right? It wasn't mm. like they were trying to make a point. Yeah. It just was a women's religion, which men were joining. Yeah, and 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 also those people who were quite poor. You know, you you can see those kind of sto- stories of in other parts of Christian history where, oh, there's a, a particular person who dies and she's quite wealthy and it and it has an impact on the rest of roman culture greco coman but it's her slave maid who has brought her faith the faith to her right yes and then she's put on she's in the platform it's almost like it's un, and you know these are how you use your privileges that you are in a position and you use your platform in the right the position that you've been has been afforded to you to articulate what needs to be articulated but the person who's bringing that um, flame to you will be the person that it needs to be someone who can walk through the back door and won't be stopped yeah and this is another thing to look out for as we go through acts actually is the not just the ethnic kind of nationalities but the social classes are changing and being mixed up as well and elite people are being served uh, like their servants are assuming leadership positions yeah so rich people are being led by the poor in the early mm-hmm. church and rich mm-hmm. people are kneeling and receiving communion from their servants, for example. Yeah. Like that is socially a dynamite thing to happen in this early church. Like it's not totally. just, it's not just the kind of multi-ethnic melange, which is happening in the early church, but mm-hmm. there's also a real political, social political upheaval that some of these yeah. kind of um, uh, social classes are being not, respected within that within the community of the church but then it's almost like on a sunday the rich person is kneeling and receiving communion from the poor person but then on the monday the poor person is the servant is trotting behind with the baskets while the rich person is out shopping yeah and and so you see you're starting to see that these things are working their way through the system without like it's changing the the social dynamics of the political social dynamics culture through the early church but the church isn't trying to change it. The church isn't, hasn't begun its movement around upending social economic roles. But it is upending social economic roles just by being what it is. And, I think and that's it's just a with kingdom value, well. isn't it? Like yeah. It's a kingdom value that just as, as you walk in that kingdom, it's just part of the air as to how things work. And it's interesting that Paul later talks about some of those relationships of the household and how you he's, he's organizing those submissions but reminding people like in Philemon that actually your servant he's your brother in Christ and you're a servant here and you're 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 a slave to Christ just get let's get that right in your head and Eudea and Syntyche are pillars the two women are pillars of the Philippian church and they're fighting but they're and you know uh Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And he says, go to Jerusalem and wait for my Holy Spirit. And then the kingdom will be restored. And what it looks like is men and women serving in churches, right? Poor and rich, side by side, Gentiles, Romans, and 
Galatians and Philippians and Ephesians and all that cheek by jowl side by side and that's what the restored kingdom actually looks like and it's beautiful that that comes out in so many different ways from the letters of Paul and all the rest of it because you it's not as they would have grown up with a different culture but to be shown that to be chasing Jesus with Jesus then being led by the Holy Spirit that actually this is where you you met him this is how you saw him and so their worldview is being changed at that point by not not by ideas or philosophies, but actually an embodied experience. Through practice. Of, through practice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I find this, I'm talking to two professional church leaders right now, so this is good because I am tempted these days to be not, not really very big on church. <laughs> I don't like church very much. And yet here I'm speaking to two professional churchy people reminding me that the church is actually still the kingdom happening. So, so that I'm glad you bring that up, Stephen, because I, I, as you were talking and giving, I can't remember which one, you know, uh, but you were you were giving your intro to Acts, and you, and you were talking about the kingdom being bigger, and I and I knew this thing about you, you know, like ah, you know, the church, I don't know if I can do it anymore, you know, and I'm yeah, I'm curious what you think about this when you look at how the Holy Spirit led these early communities. And so what does that mean? Yeah, what what is that? I, I guess I'm curious what that looks like for you now, you know, as, as you've revisited Acts or it's it's still in your head a little bit. I'm, I don't know if you, how, how do you feel as your current relationship to the church? What do you, what do you feel about that for yourself personally? Well, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to find our typical Sunday, uh, Sunday morning focused activities and the apparatus around that. You don't find much of that in the book of Acts, I have to say. Mm. You do find organized kingdom people meeting mm. together. That is true. That is true. And, and you do find people organizing their power, pooling their resources, helping each other follow the way of Jesus. You do find that. And that the word church is a good word for that. And I, I can see that happening. For so, sure. so for us Anglicans, we're liturgical. Are we, are yeah. we just, you know, but are we just chasing after the wind, you know, with our little Sunday orders, you know, the, our, all the, the structure of the Book of Common Prayer and all that? Like, does that, does that kind of thing get on your nerves because we should be focused on other things? How do you, how do you, where do you sit with that? Oh, what did Natasha say? Weeds and wheat. It's we it <laughs> weeds and wheat. I'm just gonna let it all grow. If I start blundering around, I'll probably just kill everything. Okay. I okay. I'm I'm I am more interested in the kingdom. So if you well, Paul says this, doesn't he? If you speak with the tongues of angels but don't have love, you're just a, a clanging symbol or something like that. So if if you can speak with liturgical precision and beauty but you aren't doing the stuff and sure. people around you aren't loved, sure. um, then you're a waste of time. So that isn't to say liturgy is a waste of time. It's saying if you do that, but you don't have love, then you're a waste of time. So I'm, I'm more interested in the love than the liturgy. That's for sure. But I'm also not, I'm not against, I'm not going to, I'm not going to mount a campaign against <laughs> the liturgical practice. Right. And I think maybe what my observation is, is I know a lot of Anglicans that their, their obsession is with getting the liturgy right. Yes. Yes. You know, you know, do, have we, have we adopted the most pure version of this and are we doing it correctly? Whereas when I lead people to confess their sins, 
I'm asking them to lay themselves bare before God. So I'm, I'm shaping them. I'm forming them. When we pray for the world, I mean, we have our prayers of the people and, you know, we're, we're praying. So what, what I'm hopefully doing is teaching people to care for the needs of the, of the people around them. Not merely saying, well, we had our prayer session. Now we have to move on to the next thing like that. So I, I hear what you're saying. It's really, I, 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 hear, I hear the challenge of it. Don't, don't let my liturgy be a resounding gong, <laughs> a clanging cymbal. No, but I do like what you're saying about the, there's a formational aspect of it. There's, you know, I, I did my dissertation on dementia and just thinking about the fact that there are people who have learned these prayers and learned these practices. And when the prefrontal aspects of themselves that the world values aren't there, you know, there's a part of them very deep inside that remembers those things and it gives them structure and it gives them peace. And it's like, we don't fully understand our human brains, God does. We, we don't fully understand our embodied memory but God does. And all of these things together work together to help us um, that we, we we're relational creatures. We need the organization so that we hear each other. We need the organization so that we respect one another, but equally um, leaving room for the space. We said this before, it, you know, it's the same with the policies and the systems. It's there. We're coming back around to the same point, but you know, it's, it's there but it's understanding how the human psyche works. We, we need stories. We need patterns. We do need those things. Well, once again, Natasha, I feel like you've got the good final word. How, how, could we, how could we disagree with that? The church's liturgy as gentle space making, especially for those who have the most need. Um, I think we're starting to see the beginning of that here in the book of Acts. And I'm looking forward to pursuing this further with you both. But until then... I'm going to say farewell and bless you. Bye, friends. Bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10thTheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.